Mark 2, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Please stand for the reading of God's word. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered, so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and, after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Appreciate the reading of God's word this morning. I, uh, you know, when you've been raised in a place, I was raised in Southern California, as I mentioned. And uh, so when you come back from places where my wife and I have lived, like Chicago and other places, to fly into John Wayne Airport and see the palm trees and the eucalyptus and actually the sun <laughs> and... Uh, Feel the warmth. I mean, you're just coming home, and, and that's in you. If, you. if you've been raised in a place like this, it is really like coming home. And then the other thing is, is with friends that uh, we've shared uh, Christ with, that we've grown with, that we've prayed with, and love to see friends like that, that's even further coming home. And then to come to church on, on the Lord's Day like this and sit with your staff, your pastor other pastors, and uh, sense the Spirit, and you go, I'm at home. And so that's how I feel in preaching the Word to you this morning. And uh, I pray that you'll hear it, hear God's Word. I'm going to be, I'm, as what you do, is you're going, I'm going to be going through the text this morning, and so you want to keep your Bibles open to that so you can follow along as we look at this together. And I also want to say that uh, I think you may find some surprises in a familiar story. And so uh, be waiting to hear some things that are really revelatory about Jesus this morning. That's, wh- that's who you want to see, right? Um, Alpine hikers have told me that sometimes when caught in a brewing storm in a high elevation, 
They've seen the hair on their fellow hikers stand out in a radiant crown from their head. And when they had metal backpacks, they would see the backpacks start to glow with an eerie neon glow. That's called St. Elmo's Fire. Now, you can Google it, but not in church this morning. You, you can check it out. The same phenomenon has been recorded since ancient times. That's where it gets its name. So there would be a ship, say, out on the sea, tall sails, masts going back and forth, and then it would begin to get an eerie glow in the middle of a storm. In all cases, it means that lightning is about to strike, and if you're up high in the mountains, it means get rid of your pack and take cover because bad things could happen. I think this kind of tension, this atmosphere, describes somewhat the atmosphere and the tension that was in Capernaum as this story begins, because there was a kind of relational fire hovering over Capernaum at the north end of Galilee, this little dusty town on the shore. And you get this idea in verses 1 and 2 where you get a feel for it. And when he returned to Capernaum, I'm reading from the text, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the Word to them. Uh, the home, I think by consensus, is likely the home of the Apostle Peter's uh, mother. And uh, they've, they've excavated around there today, and they think that that's what it was, so his mother-in-law. And so as word gets out that Jesus is there, the other Gospels tell us they came from Judea, they came from Jerusalem, they came from all around Galilee, and people just began to show up at the door. Almost immediately, the home was packed, so there was no more room. You think of the crowd, some just curious. They've heard about this, this radical rabbi. They want to check him out. Others are new bright-eyed disciples who have met Jesus, seen Him in action, heard His Word, and their lives have been changed, and they can't take their eyes off Jesus, as you and I wouldn't. Important people began to show up. These guys had the robes on and so on, and uh, didn't really want to make eye contact, a little hostile. They were there, edgy. And in that case, as crowds attract crowds, soon it is impossible even to get to the door. And outside there is dust and noise and jostling and shouting and crowding. Still more people trying to press to get close. A little tension, a little dust in the air. And yet with a great crowd, there were really only two presences there. First, the account in Luke tells us there were the Pharisees and teachers of the law. They'd shown up. Now, to the unsuspecting crowd, they looked like, uh, you know, religious heavyweights who are having a spiritual life conference, a convocation to come see Jesus. 
but that's not what they were. Uh, we, we understand in our culture today the term investigating committee. They were there to check him out and see what they could get on him because actually they had already decided or they decide in this passage that they're going to kill him. So they're there, kind of wrapping their robes around him. And, and Luke tells us they were sitting. So as a rabbi, Jesus is sitting. That's the way rabbis taught. And then they're sitting around him. And then you've got wall-to-wall people. And you can, you can picture them just watching Jesus suspiciously, stroking their beards, waiting for a slip-up. So that there is literally in this passage, not an exaggeration, interpersonal fire in the air. Now the other presence, of course, is Jesus, who is sitting unperturbed, calm, totally in control. And it tells us earlier in our passage, Mark 1.14, he was preaching the word to them. He was preaching about the nearness of the kingdom, the necessity of faith, and the necessity of repentance. He's preaching the gospel. Now, I think that that crowd sensed that there was tension. They didn't know exactly what it was. They didn't know all those things that came from all kinds of, of situations. But it's very interesting that they're in the parallel account in Luke, this is Luke 5, 17. This is really uh, an interesting statement. It says, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So I, I think it was palpable. It's charged. The atmosphere crackled, so to speak, relationally. And then a disturbance began. And Mark continues in verses 3 and 4, looking at his word, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, it doesn't take much to fill in the lines, and I think it's fair to be a little imaginative here as to what's going on. As four men struggling with a litter on which a helpless paralytic lay approached the fringe of the crowd. Their few attempts to get through were futile. And that's, that's understandable. It's kind of a callous crowd, too. Um, they, they had to, I think, put the litter down, mop their brows, think about it, what are we going to do? And then they conferred, they picked it up, they walked around to the side of that flat-roofed house. Possibly there was an outside stairway going to the top. Actually, in Capernaum, those houses are so close together, you could go to one roof to another. However it was, they ascended the neighbor's roof, maybe, whatever, they got on the roof. And after much hauling and pushing, with their friend there, they paused. They would have caught their breath. And then they did the most amazing thing. They began to tear through the roof. Now, the typical Galilee roof of those days was constructed of timbers laid parallel like roof joists, just like we see in construction. 
and then across that smaller branches and timbers so that you get a basic roof. And then on top of that, reeds and thatch, and then a foot of mud packed down. So you've got a, a roof that's about this thick, and they are tearing through the roof. Now, if you're inside the house, you'd have heard the concussion. You know? You'd have heard some muted voices of men talking, and as they dug away, they tore branches, they pried between the beams, and then what happens? Debris get, starts to fall in the house. It has to be. It has to be. Then a crack of light it opens up big enough to let a man down. Now, we can be sure that there were some words exchanged <laughs> between the people down here and the people up there. And if you doubt it, remember this is Peter's mother-in-law's house. And Peter never was without words. And then the paralytic's bed slowly, has to be slowly, descended on ropes. And above, you see the light streaming past them in dusty beams. You see these guys lowering it down. You see these determined, self-satisfied faces looking down on all of this. And below are the Pharisees and the scribes brushing themselves off. And in the midst, as he arrives there, is the Prince of Peace and the paralytic illumined. This is, this is Palestine area, sun, beams, dust. Now, history would remember this uh, Capernaum caper, so to speak. And we all know what happened. We've seen it in flannel grass for years. We've seen it in videos. So we, we all know what happened. But uh, let's concentrate. We're going to concentrate on the four men for a minute, and then we're going to move on to Jesus. Now, these men, what can you say about them? They had to really love this man. I mean, they wouldn't be put off by the crowd. They took liberties with someone else's property that they would have to repair to do this. Someone is going to have to pay for it. They ignored the protests and judgments of those around, the people on the outside. Here they are getting a, a, a right to Jesus. And you have to say, why? Well, perhaps he was family. This could be an uncle, a son. Maybe. Maybe just a friend they grew up with in the neighborhood that they loved and they were going to take care of. Whatever the relationship, what you see right at the beginning is they loved this man, right? You wouldn't do that. And whatever happened that day, whether it would be healing, rejection, embarrassment, that paralytic was a very rich man because he had something for which some people spend millions and never find. I mean, real friendship, people that love you. And God's going to work in his life because they love him. That's the first thing you see about that. So you see that. But that remarkable love is paired with something even more remarkable, namely their faith. There is no way that they would have gone to those extremes, that outrageous action, if they didn't implicitly believe that Jesus 
could heal them and would heal them. He wouldn't do it. Their faith. I mean, a wavering faith would have said something like, guys, you have to do it, go on for your own from here. You can finish the work. Uh, I've got some things to do back home. They really believed. And the faith of those four friends was not a vague, subjective, passive thing like so many like to imagine faith today. I think of, uh, well, what do you would say the views act of faith, uh, idea of faith is? Some sort of ethereal, floating, you got to have faith. Faith is wonderful. Everybody has to have faith, right? That subjective, misty faith. There's none of that. Their faith is persistent. When they got their friend on the roof, nothing was stopping them, no obstacle. None of them said, uh, I don't think they'd use the phrase, but the door is closed. I guess this isn't God's will. Uh, and they didn't leave it to a committee either. He'd still be on the roof. We could go see him today. And the thing is, Jesus loved this. There, he lauded this type of, of faith with an enigmatic expression. If you just take it out of its context and read it, you go, what in the world is going on? But this is from Matthew eleven twelve. Listen to this. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And violent men take it by force. So when those four, by faith, tore through the roof, they took the kingdom by violent, determined, grace, force. That kind of force unleashes God's power. And Jesus loved this. And their faith was creative. I mean, undoubtedly, there were people standing in the crowd who went, wow. When they went on the roof, what an idea. Why didn't we think of that? Well, the reason is they didn't believe as passionately at those, as those four believed, and they didn't love as deeply, right? And I just add their faith was sacrificial. I've alluded to this, but somebody had to pay to fix the roof. But this kind of faith is willing to pay the price. It wasn't consideration. Now, we're, we've got a whole mixture of people here. I can't even see your faces because of the light. You can see mine, but I can't see you. I can hear you, but I can't see you. But perhaps you have heard people talk about putting their faith in Jesus and wondered, what does that mean? Well, I think there's a snapshot, just a, a, a very revealing shat, sna, uh, snapshot right here. Faith is about action. The gospel of Mark is called the action gospel. It's called the go gospel because you will read, it's the, actually it's the Greek word euthus, immediately, 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 immediately. It's all about action the whole way through. You can read that word, I think, 25 or 30 times through uh, the book of Mark, the Go Gospel. And the faith of four friends meant that no one was going to keep them from bringing their pitiful friend to Jesus. The callous crowds, they found their way around them. And the roof, I was thinking 
I was just thinking, actually, I've been thinking about this. If this happened today and they were on the roof, you'd hear somebody start a chainsaw and they'd cut a hole in the roof, right? They just ripped it off. This is amazing faith. The paralytic had not only faithful friends, but faith-filled friends who so passionately believed, passionately believed, believed with all their hearts. They got him to Jesus. Now, speaking to the choir, as Christians, we believe that Jesus is the only person who can change our lives forever. We believe that He is the only one who can meet our deepest needs. That's, That's what you believe. That's what I believe. We believe. We believe that, and I think we believe it with all our hearts because we wouldn't be here if we didn't believe it. We believe that. If you're here today, and I'll just put it in, the, in terms, because some friends have invited you to come, and perhaps, and I say it, kindly pestered you to be here, you're a blessed person because you have faithful, loving friends. Okay, the real paralytics there were the scribes and the Pharisees, those calcified, awful souls who are just sitting there, according to Luke. Even if they didn't believe, they should have been directing the traffic to see what this prophet would do. They should have reached up and brought the, helped get the cripple down, instead, but instead there's indifference, callousness. They don't care. In fact, they just want to see... The worst. Now, of course, Jesus saw everything more clearly than we do, actually more clearly than the text even says, because He knows their hearts. And He used that charged moment with that pathetic paralytic before Him, the light shining down like a spotlight from heaven. And what He did was shocking. It was like a bolt of lightning. As he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. You know, when lightning strikes, you can smell the ozone. There's, there's spiritual ozone in the air. And it was shocking for two reasons. First, to say to him, my son, your sins are forgiven, is so shockingly irrelevant Here's a wretched paralytic moldering on his pallet, lowered through a roof, aching desperation to be healed. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven? Thanks a lot, Jesus. I didn't come here for a religious sleight of hand. Thanks for nothing. Guys, take me home. Because everyone in the room could see what that wretch's greatest need was. It was healing. But if Jesus is the Son of God, we'd better listen very carefully because Jesus does not indulge in irrelevancies, right? As he looked down on the man, what did he see? He saw shriveled appendages. Legs, arms. He saw a man 
who at times at least felt himself to be a burden to others. He saw an aching prisoner of his body. But through all of that, he penetrated to his greatest need, the forgiveness of sins. And when Jesus went beyond that man's surface need to his greatest need, he addressed everyone in that room. It is possible the paralytic had been a notorious sinner. I mean, I think it's unlikely, but it's possible. Because what? His paralysis would have mitigated his against doing the big bad sins. Probably wasn't real skilled at adultery. Uh, theft? I guess he could pickpocket somebody as they walked by his pallet. Um, robbery? Physical abuse? Murder? He couldn't do those big bad things. So Jesus' point is clear. Sin is not about our actions, it's about our hearts. That man may or may not have been the biggest sinner in Capernaum because it's right here, right? In here. He could have been. I don't know. But his spiritual need was far more than his desperate physical need. And think about this. If Jesus had cured him, he's going to cure him, but if he had just cured him right there, right at that spot... Give him 20, 30 years of health if he's, uh, you know, and then he starts to shrivel again and die. But when he forgave the man's sins, he delivered him not only from his sins, but an eternity apart from God, from hell itself. This is powerful stuff, and it gets more powerful. But I will say, you may think that the, your greatest need right now, when you walked in this door this morning, is an education. If I could just get that further degree, I'm your 30-something. If I could just get that further degree, I could get that job that I want. Or maybe you're divorced, maybe you haven't been married, and you say, my greatest need is a spouse. And I, I sympathize with all of those things. I sympathize with all those things. Or your health. I mean, if your health is deteriorating, that fills the universe. But with all those things said, those are not your greatest need. It is the forgiveness of sins. That's the shock. That's the ozone. It's in this passage. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Because it shocks for a second reason, because of what he says about himself in verses 6 and 7. Some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They knew their Bibles. Jesus was making the appalling claim that He was God. Because according to the Bible, sin is essentially and ultimately against God. And we all know this. We know it because when, in Psalm 51, when David was repenting from his sin, or what? The homicide of uh, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Adultery with Bathsheba, 
I mean, two awful horizontal sins. What, what ugly, loathsome thing, and what he'd done was an awful deed. And he repents through Psalm 51, but right in the middle of it, he says to God, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me, but against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Well, he knew what it was horizontal sins, but ultimately the sin was against God, right? All sins are ultimately against God, the one who alone can forgive sins. So what he was doing by doing this is claiming to be God incarnate. There was no doubt about it. Such colossal blasphemy deserved death. But apart from the sneering shock on the faces of the scribes that are sitting there, Jesus knew what was going on in their minds. And you see it in verses 8 and 9. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were questioning within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take your bed and walk? Well, which is easier? I would say this, that we have spent billions today in research in trying to deal with the whole matter of kind of congenital paralysis or that sort of thing, and there's not much to show for all the research. I'll tell you what, it's far easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven, than to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. We know the answer to that, don't we? I mean, does anyone have the temerity to go to Johnny Erickson's bedside, who's been paralyzed for 60 years, and say, Johnny, rise, take up your bed and walk? I don't think so. Of course not. But here Jesus shocks again, and the electricity in the air flashes like lightning when He says, and this is in verses 10 and 12 if you're following, but that you may know that the Son of Man, and I want to say right there, the Son of Man is a self-designation that Jesus took from Daniel 7.13 where uh, the Son of Man goes to the Ancient of Days and receives all dominion and all power. That's where, it, that's where that comes from. And that's Jesus' self-designation used some 60 times in the New Testament. But you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Now, this is, this is not a TV healing, put your hand on the screen, healing. At Jesus' words, now think about this, the paralytic's crooked bones straightened and assumed density. When you're 80 years old like me, you can understand that a little more, too. His tendons flexed and stretched. His atrophied muscles inflated. His sagging skin became taut. 
And at once he rolled off his bed and stood illuminated in that dusty shaft of light radiating from the hole above in glowing health. And standing exultant, he bent over, took up his bed, put it on his shoulder, and strode joyfully through the parting throng that blocked his way out into the sunlight where his four faithful friends joined him. Now, this is my imagination, but I think probably leaping and hooping it up, right? Whoa. Now, here it is. For Jesus, it was an easy thing to say, take up your bed and walk. All it took was an exercise of his creational power with which he created everything in the universe with a word. It was easy. Out of his infinitude, nothing was subtracted. It was easy. Just a thought to do that. But the hardest thing ever was to say, my son, your sins are forgiven. Because that meant his death on the cross. Now, we're in the book of Mark. And so this is, this is right at the beginning where they decide they're going to kill him. The end of the book of Mark, they kill him. And in chapter 14, you know, just a few chapters beyond this, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to the cross. He doesn't want to drink the cup, right? Doesn't, I mean, he's horrified. And it tells us, and I'm reading from Mark 14, verses 33 and 36, He's in the garden, and it was so horrific, it says, He began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And He said to them, My soul is sorrowful even to death. It says to the disciples, Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, He fell on the ground and prayed. So He's out prostrate on the ground. Prostrate. Prostrate. On the ground. You still make mistakes when you get old. <laughs> Praying the hour might pass by him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And when the hour came, he did it by dying the lowest of all deaths, even death on the cross. Now, in retrospect, the apostle Paul described what took place on the cross in 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is so important and so heavy for just this sentence, so to speak. For our sake, He made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was sinless through all of His 31 years, from the gradle to being a crawler to puberty. All those 31 years, He was sinless. And when He became sin, He remained impeccable, sinless. He became sin while remaining sinless. And on those three dark hours in Good Friday, his heart, so to speak, became a sea into which poured mountains of our sin. The loathsome mass of our corruption poured over him. And then, as our sins were in him, 
He bore the fiery wrath of God, having become a curse for us, Galatians 3.13, and in full lucid consciousness could only come from a perfect being. In full lucid consciousness, writhing like a serpent in the gloom, took on your sins and my sin with a unity of understanding and feeling that we cannot fathom. And he did it willingly so he could say, my son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. Here it is. Jesus did the hardest thing ever done in all the cosmos, in all of its eternity, for all time. He did the hardest thing ever for you and me. Which means if you turn to Him, He's committed to forgiving you. This is such a celebrative passage. Charles Spurgeon, preaching at the height of Victorian times, said, I think I see him. He's talking about the, the uh, guy that's got the bed on his shoulder. He sets one foot down to God's glory. He plants the other to the same note. He walks to God's glory. He carries his bed to God's glory. He moves his whole body to the glory of God. He speaks. He shouts. He sings. He leaps to the glory of God. Quite a statement from a Victorian. <laughs> what a display to the wondering crowd. Who is to say that the paralytic and his four friends didn't dance down the street while the whole multitude began to clap in rhythm? They're not Bostonians, they're Hebrews. Now, here, here's where it really gets down. And when he went home, he bore something far more impressive than his bed. It was a clean heart, the greatest miracle of all. No guilt. None. Not a feather's weight of guilt. No bitterness. All those years. No bitterness. No tension. Reminds me of a line from My Fair Lady. I've often walked down this street before, but the pavement always stayed beneath my feet before. So now I'm 20 miles high. He was. That's what Christ does. What a miracle. No guilt. And someday those newly restored limbs would wither, but there remained in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Now I can say, Jesus can do anything he wants. But the greatest miracle, the only one that is eternal, is that He forgives your sin. And I just want to say to everyone here, I'm not, I'm not saying that you heard Him go with an audible first century Aramaic accent, but have you ever heard Him say, your sins are forgiven? A still small voice. Now. As when we began, uh, the power of the Lord was with him to heal, it says. So that room was charged. The atmosphere crackled with expectation. I think it's the same today. I think when this passage is opened, that there's kind of a spiritual St. Elmo's fire that kind of hovers around people. And if I, if I had the eyes to see that blue glow, I might see it over somebody's head in here as lightning's ready to strike. 
strike with belief. See, our greatest need is still the same. We need our sins forgiven. Jesus did the hardest thing ever done in time and eternity when he became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. The hardest thing ever in all time. That is Jesus' love. And may his love kind of waft out over us and sanctify our souls this morning. Amen.